0: There are many reasons, besides the scenery, to consider stopping at a historic lighthouse on your next road trip. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear stories behind some of the great lighthouses that you can visit along the American coasts. Lighthouses where tales of pirate booty, Civil War shenanigans, and tragedy come as part of their history.
1: There are also many stories of lighthouses where the keeper and his family were were washed away in the storm.
0: We'll also take a look at a transcontinental pilot's view of Sky Ferry. That's his term for the thrill he feels every time he takes
2: off on another international flight. You know, we raise the wheels, and when we lower them, it's going to be in a different day, in a different hemisphere, coming into a, a city that perhaps none of us have been to before. Learn
0: how important one simple weapon was in shaping the world. I don't think you can overstate the impression that the longbow had on, on our medieval history. Plus, listeners tell us about their remarkable trips to Europe. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If you spent your last plane flight staring at movies on a screen the whole time, then we've got someone we'd like you to meet coming up in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Pilot Mark Van Honaker has won high praise for the poetic way he writes about the marvel of modern jet travel in his new book called Skyfaring. He joins us in just a bit. We'll also get your reports on memorable European travels at eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five, and we'll find out why the longbow is a weapon that changed the world. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a look at lighthouses. In her book called A Short Bright Flash, Teresa Levitt explains how a revolutionary redesign of lighthouse lenses changed the maritime industry of 19th century France and eventually all around the world. She joins us now for a look at some of the most interesting lighthouses you can visit all around America. Teresa, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: You know, when you think about lighthouses, uh, it's almost by definition they're in dramatic situations, kind of prepared to stand up against storms and save ships. Tell us the purpose of lighthouses. Why do societies spend so much money constructing these things, and what do they accomplish?
1: Well, particularly once you get to the birth of the modern lighthouse age in the, the 18th and 19th century, um, they're crucial in keeping ships from crashing, keeping ships from ending up on the rocks or, or ending up on the shoals. Um, it was really striking to how often that happened uh, throughout human history.
0: So basically they're to mark hazards.
1: That's become their intent. Um For most of the past few thousand years, uh, they were really almost uh, sort of relegated to serving as harbor lights and uh, marking sort of uh, where you would turn into a harbor. But as they became brighter in the 19th century, they became useful, much more useful, at keeping people off of reefs.
0: You know, when I look through um, photo essays of great lighthouses, and so as you do when you travel, many of them are shown caught in these incredible storms. And these are (laughs) eight-story tall stone (laughs) structures that become submarines, literally, when they're engulfed in a wave. These things must be built to withstand the ultimate storm.
1: They are. They are. Not all of them did. There are also many stories of lighthouses where the keeper and his family were were washed away in the storm. Is that
0: right? So a storm came and literally knocked down the lighthouse?
1: Yes. Yes. um, More than once.
0: Your book features the technological innovations of the French engineer Fresnel, and it's it's a big deal because he created a lens that... uh, was able to um, bend the light in a way or whatever that would let the beam shine much brighter and much farther. What impact did that have on American maritime history? How did that matter in the 19th century for the USA?
1: Well, it really made the sort of modern lighthouse era possible. The the idea that all of the dangerous spots on a coast should be marked by a lighthouse, that really only became possible once... um, Once the lights became bright enough to be effective, and that only really happened with the Fresnel lens.
0: But did that help trade or did it save lives or or what?
1: Well, both. Certainly both. And you see, I mean, it's interesting with the lighthouse that often the rhetoric surrounding it is this sort of humanitarian rhetoric of saving lives. And yet you can also see a a very sort of strong economic motivation of uh, keeping people's goods off the bottom of the ocean.
0: Teresa, in your book, you talk about the impact of this new lighthouse technology, even on the Civil War. What did the lighthouse have to do with the Civil War?
1: Well, it actually surprised me once I started looking at the naval records of the Union, just how often they were talking about lighthouses. In fact, this was really sort of the, the initial impulse of, of the Navy was to try to recapture uh, the places where the lighthouses were so that they could get them relit. And if you think about it, it shouldn't be as surprising as it was to me. The, the first thing that happened in the Civil War was that Lincoln declared a blockade and then the immediate response to that was that the Confederacy sort of shut down all of the lights with the idea that they weren't going to help the Union in any way. So the Union then had to contend with this darkened coast. And um, in fact, they wound up losing more of their ships by grounding accidents than in all the naval battles combined. So it was a genuine problem. And much of the early effort was trying to uh, sort of recapture the lighthouses and then find the lenses. A lot of times, what had happened is the Confederates had removed them and then hidden them somewhere. And, uh, wow! And, I <laughs> and would imagine they could be very difficult.
0: I would imagine they could even put the lighthouses in the wrong place to direct ships under the rocks or something like that.
1: Now, that is a sort of level of nefariousness that they, that they did not stoop to. There's a long history, by the way, of, uh, of, of people trying to misdirect ships that way. Um, is there? Yeah, there? There is. You see it in the Caribbean, actually.
0: Teresa Levitt teaches history at the University of Mississippi, and she's the author of A Short Bright Flash. In that book, she details how Augustin Fresnel's innovative new lens design revolutionized lighthouse technology and how it changed the shipping industry and how navies went to war. It's published by W.W. Norton. Teresa, very quickly, if you're traveling on the United States, uh, East Coast and West Coast, are there a handful of lighthouses that you should be sure to have on your uh, list of uh, sightseeing attractions?
1: Sure. We'll start with the West Coast. This is some of my favorites. Point Reyes might be at the the top of my list. It's in a beautiful location. It has a great lens that's still working. And where's that? It's a little bit north of uh, San Francisco. If you head south of San Francisco, you'll hit Pigeon Point. There's a hostel, uh, sort of a youth hostel, where you can stay. So
0: you can sleep in the lighthouse. Well, you can sleep
1: in it. yes, the the keeper's hmm. cabins. Um, but you can visit the lighthouse, and its lens is on display in a museum there. Sort of an interesting lens. This is the one. So during the Civil War, they you know they hid the lens from Cape Hatteras. They couldn't find it, so they had a new one made. They eventually did find it, and so the new one that they made, they shipped to Pigeon Point. So okay. you can see that there.
0: How about on the East you know, Coast?
1: Uh, well, Portland Head uh, in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, is, uh, is a favorite of a lot of people. It, too, has a, a lens that's uh, it's no longer up in the tower, but you can head to the museum and look at it. Cape Ann in Gloucester check out both the lighthouse, but then don't forget the, the lens in the museum as well.
0: Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Teresa Levitt about her book, A Short Bright Flash, about lighthouses. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Russell's calling in from Gainesville, Virginia. And Russell, thanks for your call. Yes, hello. Hello. You've got a, a comment or a, a question for Teresa?
3: I understand her comments on that. Mine is really from the perspective of the uh, a person on vacation, and they want to visit either coast. In my case, I just returned from uh, Maine, and I was surprised to find out the number is really quite a bit of lighthouses, and the only thing I can think of, based upon what little information I received, was they have so many They're basically islands scattered around, and that would be to keep the ships from, uh, as she said, grounding in that. They're different sizes. They're different shapes. And my understanding is, if not all, almost all of the lighthouses uh, are now run electronically. Um, They're really beautiful to look at. So it sounds like
0: Maine has a lot of lighthouses, then because they have a lot of islands and probably a lot of treachery.
3: Well, I didn't count them, but when I looked at the brochure that I uh, saw when I was up there, I was surprised at how many there were, and I was only in one small area. All right. But I can understand why. You get rough seas in the uh, wintertime and that you do still have a lot of ships come in, even cruise lines come in. So I presume to some degree, even though they have the technology within the Mm -hmm. ships uh, to navigate, it's still useful right. if they come in at nighttime.
0: All right. Russell, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Okay. Take care. And Patrick's on the line calling us from Indian Town in Florida. Patrick, do you have some lighthouse memories that you can share?
4: Yes. Uh, we have two. Um, well, one big lighthouse near where we live. It's the Jupiter Inlet, the Jupiter Lighthouse. It was built in 1860 and Jupiter is in Palm Beach County, just north of West Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a little park and they have exhibits of um, life there for people running the lighthouse. And north of that, in Martin County, is a place called the House of Refuge, and there was ten of these on the coast in Florida that were there. If anybody shipwrecked or anybody was in need, they could go to these places. and It was almost like a hostel for um, people sailing in Florida when it wasn't quite as built up as it is today.
0: So do these go back to the 19th century? Teresa, what do you know about uh, historic lighthouses down in the Florida area?
1: Oh they've got wonderful lighthouses uh, in Florida um, there's Jupiter Inlet also Saint Augustine, Ponce de Leon. these are all worth seeing. Florida is also particularly interesting because it had a bit of the ties to like this sort of uh, Caribbean tradition of uh, of wrecking of where there were people and this would this would be earlier on in like sort of the 17th century or so but there would be people who made their living by scavenging what they found from shipwrecks. And in fact, these people were not particularly interested always in, uh, in keeping ships off the... <laughs>
0: so they would make more money if there were more shipwrecks.
1: That's right. And a good uh, lighthouse was right. bad
0: for their bottom line.
1: And so you see, like sometimes in the Caribbean, that people would go and um, sabotage lighthouse work sites um, and oh. the like.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Teresa Levitt about her book, A Short Bright Flash. If you're thinking, again, from a travel point of view, Uh, and we're traveling uh, around uh, either the East Coast or the West Coast, where will we find the best opportunity to have this kind of experience? Not just to see a dramatic lighthouse, but to sleep in one, to go to a museum, to learn about the lenses, and so on. Give us a a little primer in appreciating lighthouses uh, in America.
1: Well, one of the things that happened, once the Coast Guard started decommissioning lighthouses in the 1980s, um, they would often go into the hands of they would put them in the hands of people who are going to do something with them. So you actually find a large number that have been, in fact, turned into bed and breakfasts. Um, mm-hmm. Or in the case I'd mentioned Pigeon Point, but there are actually several of these lighthouses in California which have um, now function as youth hostels as well.
0: Where was those again? Did you say in Florida?
1: Uh, well, they're, they're actually, they're all over the country. Um, uh-huh. So you can find bed and breakfasts. Uh, there are several in New England. Um, the Great Lakes area mm-hmm. has some as well. And then there are several along the Californian coast that are hostels, which, uh, you know, don't charge very much for you to to spend the night there. So you
0: could do a little search, Airbnb, youth hostels, whatever, and find yourself an inexpensive bed in a lighthouse.
1: You'll find several. Do you have to work? (laughs) Usually not. Usually they're just happy to, (laughs) to take your money.
0: And, Teresa, if you want to really learn about the Fresnel lens and see one up close and actually see one in action... Where's a good opportunity to do that?
1: Well, actually, the, uh, the Ponce de Leon lighthouse that I mentioned earlier, it has a museum attached to it, which is, it effectively functions as sort of the Fresnel Lens Museum. And they have uh, a workman there who, in fact, is one of the few people capable today of uh, sort of really masters this technology. So that would that would be a good place.
0: And that's in Florida, Ponce de Leon?
1: Yep. Yes. All
0: right. Teresa Levitt. What an interesting book, A Short Bright Flash, all about the birth of the modern lighthouse and the Fresnel lens. Thanks so much and best wishes.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: air travel is still one of the most remarkable feats of modern life. Transcontinental pilot Mark Van Honecker takes us skyfaring. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our number is 877-333-RICK.
5: Bonjour. Je suis Hélène Cholino. J'habite Paris et je voyage avec Rick Steves. Hello. I'm Elaine Chiolino. I live in Paris and I travel with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je suis Ellen Chiolino, J'habite Paris et je voyage
0: avec Rick Steves. Have you ever dreamed of being an airline pilot? Mark Van Honecker did, and changed his career to do just that. He now flies 747s around the world. A dozen years into his pilot career, he's written *Skyfaring: A Journey with a Pilot*. The book demystifies what it's like to be in the cockpit and shares his pilot's-eye perspective on the strange and beautiful experience of flying, viewing the world from the window of a jet airplane. Mark Van Honecker, thanks for flying with us today on Travel with Rick Steves.
2: I'm happy to be here,
0: Rick. So, Mark, the book is called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. What do you mean by skyfaring?
2: Well, skyfaring is, you know, is a term that I coined to really capture the history of aviation and the way it extends back into the nautical realm you know, We speak of aeronautics and airports, I mean, these ports of the air, and, hmm. and I really wanted to remind travelers that the way we fly today is, of course, different from the way uh, we used to travel in the old days, but you know, there is a connection with that old style of journey mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the old romance of old journeys. And, mm-hmm. So uh, you know, seafaring, seafaring
0: a, yeah, seafaring, skyfaring.
2: Yeah, that's right, that's right. You bring up in the book,
0: uh, referring to the sky as like a, a separate geographical place. I mean, you could call it a geographical place, couldn't you, the sky?
2: You could. You know, as you, as you mentioned, I started flying a little later than some of my colleagues, and one of the, the aspects of flying that struck me most forcefully was the sense that the sky is a separate geography, that it's a separate world, and it's been discovered and mapped and named uh, in a way which is similar to other places, but this is a place we can't see, and yet it's above us. It's all around us.
0: So talk a little bit about that, because in your book you, you make a point about waypoints and beacons and routes and so on. What's a waypoint?
2: Well, a waypoint is a geographical position in space, which has been, in the old days, they were related to beacons. Now they're sort of chosen as latitude and longitude points. And they have a five-letter name, and that name has to be pronounceable and understandable. And the reason for that, of course, is that in the sky, you have pilots from so many different countries interacting with other pilots and air traffic controllers. So you need this sort of global language of place. And that's come about as these five-letter words. And these often have a, a nautical theme Fleet is one, Anchor is one, off the coast of uh, of eastern Canada is Banks, uh, B-A-N-C-S for the Grand Banks. Mm-hmm. Some of them are kind of funny, I mean like
0: Barbecue or something like that.
2: Yeah, there's some great ones in the U.S. The U.S. has done a particularly fine job of naming its waypoints after locally themed historical or culinary uh, attractions. You know, these names don't have to mean anything. A lot of them are kind of nonsense words, they don't mean anything, but in the U.S. they often do... In the sky above, Kansas City, is barbecue and spicy and ribs and brisket. <laughs> I'm flying uh, in at the spicy point, and I'm going to turn left at brisket. That's exactly what they will say. Near Houston, I believe, is touch and down. So they can you know, the controller can say, proceed uh, direct uh, touch and then down. I grew up in Massachusetts. There's some great ones near Boston. There's chowda, which is, chowda. has no R in it, like a good <laughs> Boston accent. It's uh, C-H-W-D-H. There's lobster, again, without an R. Lobster. Uh, there's socks and Fenway and strike and out. Uh, my favorite one is uh, is Twain, uh, which is over Hannibal, Missouri, uh, which is where uh, Mark Twain grew up. And, of course, he was a pilot of, of a riverboat. And uh, so to be, uh. when a controller says, proceed direct Twain, it's a nice... Uh, yeah. Well, it's a uh. nice historical echo and a literary echo as well.
0: That's nice. Also, a- in a little more serious vein, there's areas that are uh, military restriction zones. You talked about noise-sensitive areas. Mumbai's Tower of Silence. What are some of these sort of almost uh, geographical areas that are created by what's going on down on the Earth.
2: Well, a lot of them relate to urban areas where there's noise restrictions about flying over. Sometimes in certain parts of the world, there are over palaces. Hmm. The one near Mumbai that I was really uh, struck by is the Tower of Silence. Uh, it's an area where bodies are left to be ritually consumed by vultures. Uh, it's a religious place, and there's an area above the sky and that where no planes are allowed to fly, and it's an almost haunting uh, you know, It's a very ancient and profound practice, of course, and yet it extends into the most modern uh, realm in a way, which is something I wanted to capture in the book.
0: Yeah, that, it's uh, incredible, or it's just impressive that a 747, which has a, a job to do and, and uh, mileage to make, actually flies around a tower of silence out of respect for the bodies down below.
2: That's right. And, and of course, when you fly a smaller plane, uh, you're lower down in the sky, so private pilots are very familiar with, with restrictions uh, mm-hmm. of that sort. You know, so that's something we're always thinking about in our, when we're looking at our charts and looking ahead at the route. And, of course, the routes are largely pre-calculated by computers, and, and of course, right. they account for all these restrictions.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Van Harnaker, and his book is called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. Mark is referring to the sky as sort of a geographical place. In that vein, Mark, to be at sea, a lot of us can imagine that with no land in sight. What's it like to be in the sky with no land in sight? What do you see? Uh, What strikes you? What's the majesty of it all?
2: You know, it's interesting you make the point about not seeing land. I mean, I'm very fond of the analogy of the sky and the ocean and the idea of the sky as an ocean of air. In fact, there's a great book about the air called The Ocean of Air, or An Ocean of Air, Hmm. uh, which I used in researching my own book. And, you know, we really do have the sense that we're moving through this very vast volume. Uh, My last flight was from Boston uh, back to London Heathrow, you know, it's not often we see something that we haven't seen before. But on that flight, I saw something I'd I'd never seen from the flight deck before. And it was a, as we were coming in over the west coast of Ireland, the, uh, you know, in the distance, the sky was just beginning to get light. So you could still see stars above, but the horizon was turning light blue. And below, you could see the west coast of Ireland and the coastal villages. And I saw the beam of a lighthouse. Couldn't see the lighthouse. You couldn't see the land. But you could see this beam of light turning like a, like the second hand of a watch over the dark sea. And it was a uh, just a reminder of, of the volume of ocean that um, a yeah. 747 can convolt in a, in a single flight. And, and, of course, that's a short flight for a 747. You know, yeah, from Boston to London is huh. is one of the shortest flights that a 747 will ever do.
0: Wow. That's interesting that you can actually learn a little bit about terra firma by looking at it from the sky. I can just think, you know, from my experience looking out the window, I mean, I remember flying over Germany thinking, you know, this country is you know, about the size of Montana with one-third the population of the United States packed into it, but there's no urban sprawl. I saw forest and, and green spaces and then really tightly organized urban centers flying, you know, into Venice. You see the lagoon and how it cocoons the city of Venice itself. Or I remember coming into Mexico City, just seeing forever stretch of that gray grid of apartments through the polluted air. What are some moments like that where you've better understood the Earth by looking at it from the sky?
2: You talk about the kind of divisions of urban and, and rural and that sort of thing, and one of the most amazing things about flying into London, especially in the morning when the sun is just coming up, you know, that's the time so many flights will be arriving from North America, and, you you know, you're coming into Heathrow, you're coming into London, one of, the, one of the greatest cities in the world, and yet, and yet mostly what you see are hedgerows. You see these mm. fields outside mm-hmm. outside the city, and you see these quite random patterns of hedgerows which are so ancient and they make such an amazing contrast to the, for example, the uh, the fields you see in the Midwest which are cut along uh, north, south, and east and west lines which is actually a useful thing if you're a small plane pilot trying to find your way. You know, that contrast between the grid of the American Midwest and... And then the ancient yeah, kind ha- of topographical sort of development. Yeah, and, and just to see a countryside that evolved, you know, over thousands of years in this incredibly local way which is kind of lost in the mists of mm-hmm. time compared to a new country like the US where mm-hmm. where those decisions were made much more rapidly and so yeah you can learn a great deal of history from uh yeah. from the sky you know you pointed out so many just thought provoking evocative
0: observations i love the idea that you know when you when you work the sun's always out because you're above the clouds were you taking notes over years of flying to cobble this book together because it's just a an amazing uh, body of observations
2: you know i fly quite long flights now on the 747 and so after we land uh, in a place, you know, the airports we go to are always quite big ones. It takes sort of an hour to half an hour to move through them and go through immigration mm-hmm. and get to the bus, which is going to take us to our hotel. And so suddenly, you know, I've flown, let's say, from London to Beijing. And all of a sudden, an hour after landing, I'm, I'm on a bus going through Beijing, mm-hmm. rush hour traffic in the morning. You know, I'm too excited to sleep because I'm looking out at this amazing city that, I, that I've that i suddenly mm-hmm. landed in. And so I would, I would make notes on my phone um, or on a piece of paper and think, you know, what are the things about the flight that I would want to tell you about? What, what, what are the things that I would want to show passengers in the cockpit? So I made a lot of notes like that, and then uh, when I got home, I would sort of pull these random uh, scraps of paper out of my pocket in my flight bag that I had uh, collected on buses in Singapore and Cape Town and Johannesburg and uh, Sao Paulo, and then I would try to organize them, and that's how the chapters of the book uh, came about. Mark Van Honecker is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves.
0: In his book, Skyfaring, he reflects on the marvels of jet travel and helps reorient us passengers to the beauty of flight. After travel writer Pico Iyer read Skyfaring, he wrote, Imagine Henry David Thoreau reflecting on the wonders of the lights of Oman as seen from the cockpit of a 747, and you begin to have something of the fresh magic of this exceptional debut. Mark's book is called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. Mark, talk about taking off the gut feeling or the endorphins or or what's going on when you are in command of this huge 747, packed with people. You mentioned in your book the the rotation, when the nose lifts and the tail dips. Uh, What's going through your mind? What does it feel like?
2: Well, of course, so much of of what's actually going through your mind comes back to the training that we do in the simulators and in the, the planes that we've flown before. In some ways it's perhaps less exciting for us than it is for the mm. passengers because it's for us it's based on on routine and rules and and training and the teamwork in the cockpit. But you know, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it. And there is this great moment, you know, as you as you're accelerating, especially on a large plane, as you go faster and faster down the runway, you know, when you first start out, you're basically just driving. But as you get faster and faster, you start to control the airplane using the same controls that will control it in the air. Mm. And so just before rotation, you really have the sense that that you're flying along the ground. You're not a land-based vehicle anymore. Mm-hmm. You are not. You are not driving anymore. You're flying along the ground. And, and when you reach the required speed, and your colleague says mm. rotate, and, and you pull the nose up, and there's, I mean, it's just. It is an amazing feeling to to feel 380 tons of absolutely. You know, jaw-droppingly beautiful engineering You know, lift into the air and, and to think that we raise the wheels and, and when we lower them, it's going to be in a different day, in a different hemisphere, right. coming into a, a city that perhaps none of us have been to before. Does it occur to you,
0: I've just reached the point of no return and I cannot stop this thing safely? I've got to take off whether I like it or not?
2: Well, there is a speed called V1, uh, which is uh, one of those terms which has crossed uh, from aviation into popular culture a little bit. And that's a speed beyond which the takeoff is continued. And before that speed, if there was a, you know, problem, then the uh, takeoff would be stopped. So rotation comes usually at V1 or or just after it, and then we're off and and we're away and we're uh, going to the far side of the world.
0: We're talking with Mark Van Honecker about skyfaring, a journey with a pilot. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ken is calling in from Chilliwack in British Columbia. Ken, thanks for your call.
3: Hello, Rick. Hello, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, do you have a thought for our pilot guest?
3: Yeah, so I had a question. Mark, it said uh, in the little bio there that you had change from your business career in 2003 to then become a pilot afterwards. And I was just wondering, because this is kind of a dream of mine to be a pilot, what the nuts and bolts really were to switch careers and the training that you had to do, or is there kind of an apprenticeship program to be a pilot? Just kind of a grand outline of what that was like.
2: Sure. Hi, uh, Ken. Hi. I went through a slightly different path than a lot of pilots in the U.S. would take. Uh, I actually went to Europe, and I enrolled in a program that British Airways has, which is a cadet pilot training program, um, where your training is essentially underwritten or or sponsored by the airline, and um, that's obviously designed to open the profession. Uh, It's an expensive profession to get into. It's obviously designed to open it to as wide an audience as possible. So I went through an airline-sponsored route, which is common in Europe, but less common in the U.S. Um, we did do a lot of our training in the U.S. We were sent back to Arizona, so there's a lot in the book about Arizona. Uh, in terms of the route in the U.S., I'm probably not the best person uh, to answer that question because, first of all, it was, it was you know more than 12 years ago for me, and, and also I, I did it outside of uh, the U.S., although I, w- I will say I've never met a pilot who has regretted their choice of career. I've never hmm. I've never once heard a pilot say, well, I should have done something else. I mean, everybody is happy with it if that if that helps you at all with your decision process, uh, it's, uh, I can't recommend it highly enough.
3: That's good to hear that uh, satisfaction is kind of almost guaranteed in that sense.
2: You know, as Rick said, it's always sunny up there. I mean, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a bad way to spend your working days and, and nights. Ken, thanks for your call. Are you going to be a pilot?
3: I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to have to look into this cadet program and I hope that uh, maybe it's open to the international community and hopefully they're still doing it.
0: Yeah, you know, um, Mark, in your book you talk about a friend who was uh, flying a small plane and he said it felt better than surfing. Is there a sort of a sense that it's, a, you know, like a small car? You feel the road. Is it more fun to fly a small plane, or is it a huge difference from that in a seven forty seven?
2: You know, that's a that's a topic of much debate. I love flying the seven forty seven, and I I feel that it has, you know, a great deal of stability, but is also very maneuverable. And you know, if you if you talk to any any car aficionado or car automotive engineer, I mean. That trade-off between um, maneuverability and stability is, is of course, the, uh, the tough mm-hmm. thing to get right for, for drivers, and the Boeing designers have done a great job. So it doesn't feel, right. it doesn't feel like a big plane. Um, but a lot of my colleagues do um, fly small planes. Uh, some of them, a lot of them sail, which is, again, getting back to that nautical thing. A lot of my mm-hmm. colleagues are really into sailing. Uh, hmm. Because fundamentally, you think of air, it's kind of like water, but three-dimensional. It's got
0: mass. And, and that's right. You're navigating and through it like a boat navigates through water with a with a rudder. You've got rudders that just work in 3D.
2: That's right. We have rudders. Um, we even have a tiller uh, on the 747, which is how we control the uh, the nose wheel on the ground. Right. Uh, we speak of knots for our speed. Huh. Uh, we leave a wake in the air, so that that's really the best example of, of yeah. how it's a fluid. And of course, the science of aerodynamics is fluid dynamics, and that it applies to air and water only in slightly different ways. Ken, thanks for your call.
3: Thank you very much.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Van Honecker, and his book is Skyfaring, and it's uh, the inside look at what it's like to be a pilot. Mark, how might a pilot have a different worldview philosophically than others? Is there anything in your work that helps you get something that others don't?
2: Well, I think as a pilot, you, especially as a long haul pilot, you develop this very deep sense of the size of the planet. I mean, We speak so much of uh, of the internet as connecting us across continents in milliseconds, but to me, I think, you know, in in a couple hundred years, we'll look back and airliners and computers will be seen as both being developed at about the same time in roughly the 20th century. And I actually think the airliners will be considered the more amazing development (laughs) because isn't it much more amazing to actually go there? And if you have a business meeting, well, it's great you can connect online via email, but isn't it better uh, to actually go there? And, of course, that's happening so much now. And mm-hmm. So I think you do get this sense of the physicality of the planet and, and the wonder of being able to move over it. I mean, And, and just this constant reminder that we live on a, we live on a rock uh, that's, that's turning in the light of a star. I mean, you can't fly very long and, and forget that. So it's kind of the wonder that the
0: astronauts had when they looked back at the Earth from, from space. You can get that uh, from a little lower. It's like the, the first floor of the Eiffel Tower. You still get a beautiful view of Paris.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: You know, I love the times when when the sun and the plane are in sync and you're landing and you can see the shadow of your plane out the window, you know, just cruising over the fields. Have you ever noticed that when you're landing?
2: I have. It's a really wonderful thing. And um, it's amazing to think that when you watch the shadow get bigger like that, you know, the flight will end when the wheels meet the shadow. I mean, that's when they touch again. That's when the flight ends. And when the flight began, they parted. So Oh,
0: that's beautiful. And then you are home. Yeah, or you
2: are where yeah. you want to be. You find your shadow again on the far side of the world. You t- and when the wheels touch the shadow, that's when you're, you're back, you're, you're home, or you're in a, a new, amazing place that you'd always wanted to go to. Beautiful. Well, Mark, thanks for
0: writing uh, this book. It is just a fascinating inside look at something all of us, uh, I'm sure, are thankful for, but uh, a lot of times we don't uh, understand just all that's involved in making the world smarter through uh, the airline industry. So, uh, Mark Van Huneker, the book Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. Thanks a lot and happy travels.
2: Thank you, Rick. See you on board. Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Indian Airlines and Captain Das Gupta, we welcome you on board our flight IC-408. We are about to take off for Calcutta. Will you kindly fasten your seat belts, keep your seats
3: upright, and refrain from smoking while the no-smoking hope you enjoy your flight.
0: Thank you. We'll take more of your calls in just a minute at 877-333-7425. Tell us about the remarkable adventures you've been on. And we'll also find out why we grew up speaking English instead of French thanks to a technological innovation that changed the balance of power back in medieval Europe. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Every now and then, we like to open the phones at Travel with Rick Steves to hear about your travels. Here's how we do it. In the radio section of the ricksteves.com website, include your email address where it says sign up for radio news. We only use those emails to notify you when we're recording new interview topics so we can invite you to be included as a caller on the show. Let's start out with James in Virginia Beach. He wants to share his list of favorite cities to visit in Europe. Hi, James.
4: Hi, how are you doing, Rick? I've been to Europe eight times. My favorite cities are Paris, Vienna, and London. At this point, Paris,
0: Vienna, and London. I'll vote for that. Yeah.
4: Yeah, they're they're very user friendly cities. You know, the the metro works well. The people are nice. The food is accessible and they don't try to jippy
0: you like they do in Prague. Well, Prague is sort of in the rough-and-tumble stage in their tourism trade, and it's getting used to how to take care of its customers without ripping them off. I think Paris, Vienna, and London are expensive, but if you can afford it and you know how to travel well, as you said, they're very well designed for uh, accessibility and for people to get around. And Now, when you think back, you, you said Paris and Vienna and London are three of your favorite cities. I always think of Paris and Vienna as sort of... Uh, Counterparts. Paris would be the grand capital of Western Europe, and Vienna is more the capital of Central Europe. You got the Bourbon kings and Louis the Fourteenth and all that in Paris, and of course the Napoleonic era. And then you've got all the Habsburgs, uh, centuries and centuries of Habsburg rule in Vienna. Why do you think Paris and Vienna are so great?
4: Paris, because of the of the wine variety. There's so many, uh, these long, so many different areas that each are like little... They're like little sub-neighborhoods within a city.
0: Yeah, they say uh, Paris is she... a collection of neighborhoods. I, I have always been charmed by that.
4: And uh, I felt more comfortable in Vienna just walking in and sitting down in a restaurant. You know, I was traveling alone and and knowing that they would be nice.
0: James, do you get a sense that in Vienna they know how to enjoy the moment and, and right. sort of embrace life? Yeah. I've got a theory that they used to be, you know, the superpowers, the Habsburg Empire, and they were running a, you know, quarter of Europe or something like that, and and then they started and lost World War One, and suddenly they become this capital of what was a grand empire ruling a pretty insignificant little landlocked country, Austria. When you go to Vienna, you can see their entire navy. It's moored under the bridge <laughs> at the Danube River. There, just a couple of speedboats, a couple of coast guard boats, and that's their whole navy. And you get the sense in Vienna that okay, they've been there, they've done that. Now they're just gonna—they know what's important in life, and they've got the best chocolate and the best cakes and the best music and the best cafes. And it seems like every day is Sunday afternoon, and they're just out strolling, enjoying the gardens, going to the butterfly court, and. I mean, enjoying the horses, uh, you know, they have entire symphonies playing at church on mass uh, on Sunday. Uh, It's just an amazing love of life and expertise on life in Vienna. And as tourists, we get to actually become temporary Viennese if we know what's going on.
4: Yeah, I went to the opera there. Rather than doing a tour... You can pay, you know, fifteen euros and have a nice front row seat in the balcony for, you know, for a show, yeah, right? That's <laughs> so. an,
0: and that's that's another aspect of Vienna is they want to make the culture accessible to the masses and to the students and to the struggling people that can't afford the the fancy, uh, you know, opera sort of culture. But they know that people, regardless of uh, their economic status, have at least potentially an appetite for fine culture. Consequently, you've always got cheap seats available uh, you know, in, the, in the top level at the Opera House. You've got that amazing music exactly. festival. Yeah, I that. Yeah. Hey, we got to run. Thanks for your call. Okay, thanks for talking Good to talk Take to care. you. Take care. Bye now. 877-333-7425 That's our phone number at Travel with Rick Steves as we hear about your most memorable travel experiences. And Nancy's calling in from Charlestown in West Virginia. Nancy, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. Do you have a travel story to tell us?
6: Well, I took a trip on the um, early 1970s. I just decided I decided to go around the world, but I didn't get around the world. I had a certain amount of money, and I realized traveling a single woman was sort of difficult in certain parts of the world. So I started out in Europe, and I decided I just didn't want to, like, arrive in Europe, like, take a plane, and all of a sudden you're in Europe, and so I decided to take a freighter, which is, you know, the cargo ship, Mm -hmm. and a friend of mine who had traveled told me about it, and it was delightful. I took the freighter to England. It was in the autumn, and this is the North Atlantic. There were 12, there's not allowed to be, at least then, there wasn't allowed to be more than 12 passengers on the freighter, because then there would have to be a doctor on board, and there wasn't, and you know, and freighter travel is just very simple. There's no, you know, it's it's nothing fancy at all. It's just, you're just sailing. And I had a little room with a porthole, and the food was really good, but there was no, like, games, there were no frills. You just have to Are you Are you eating yourself.
0: with the crew, or do they serve you like in a restaurant?
6: Well, actually, the crew ate downstairs. There's a real hierarchy. But we, the passengers ate with the captain and, you know, the higher yeah. crew. You know, yeah. I don't know what they were called. The captain and the assistant and yeah. the engineer, the chief engineer. So it was a small group of the more of the elite and then the others, the rest of the crew ate together downstairs. So
0: you're going across the Atlantic. Or are you just hanging out with the containers or was there a, a nice area where you could sunbathe and read your book? or, or, or Well, no. Or,
6: it was huh. just you could go out on the deck. Right. But there was no Nice places for sunbathing or anything. It was just very, very basic. And, you know, the cargo was down below and you kind of had the run of the ship in a way Mm -hmm. because there was just, there weren't a lot of passengers and there wasn't a lot of trouble you could get into. And you probably um, get,
0: you don't have to deal with jet lag because you're going so gradually.
6: Well, no, you don't have to deal with jet lag, but there was, you do have to deal with like vertigo sometimes because if the ocean was rough, it, it didn't have whatever the these ocean liners have, stabilizers, it didn't have that. So sometimes, you know, if there was a storm, like the water would be coming up over the deck mm. and you couldn't really be out on the deck because it was dangerous, you wow. had to stay in. And so I did have some issues with vertigo, but I ended up, you know, going to England. But then when I came back two and a half years later, I was returning from Greece. And that was that was the story because I had booked this freighter like three months in advance, and then it was time to leave. And there was an issue, well, we're going to go to Beirut, and then, oh, no, we can't go to Beirut because of the war, and there's, you know, some restrictions. And then they said they weren't sure where we were going to go. We were supposed to end up at the States in Philadelphia. So the day I arrived, they said, oh, it's all clear, we're going to Beirut first. So we went to Beirut, but what happened in the meantime was the war got worse, and there was bombings and stuff going on, and we couldn't, there was nobody there to take the cargo out. And so we were stuck there, and we, the captain said we couldn't leave because, you know, this cargo was already paid for. Hmm. So that would be stealing the cargo, but we couldn't drop it off. So we ended up staying in Beirut for about a month at the dock. But there was, you know, bombing not too far from the dock. So at a certain point, we went out a mile, and we just stayed like a mile off the shore. So we did that for like a week, and then we were running out of food. <laughs> and then Oh, no. And then we, yeah. And then, finally, by the end of the month, he just said, "You know what? This is a war. All rules in war are different." So he ended up paying somebody to you know unload the cargo, and they just dumped it off you yeah. know right there on the dock and and then we left. We went to Italy to Brindisi, so i when I first booked the cargo ship, I didn't know where we were going to end up going. All I knew was I was going to end up in Philadelphia, so then we ended up in Italy, and that, and that was also nice. So the rest of the trip was very uneventful, but it actually took about two and a half months.
0: So did you ever go on another freighter since then?
6: No, but I would.
0: You would? You're patient. <laughs> uh, you're an adventurous and a patient soul.
6: Well, it's a wonderful way to travel, and yeah. I just think that mm-hmm. I don't know if there's still travel you know, by freighter. That,
0: they're used to, that used to be the budget way to go to Europe. People would hop on a freighter, and these days... Uh, I don't hear about it anymore. I don't know if they bother with having 12 passengers on a freighter. I would think it'd be more trouble than it'd be worth. But uh, what a cool memory. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah,
6: you're welcome. Okay, thanks. Nancy.
0: Bye now. Uh, thank Happy you. travels. Mm-hmm. <music> Mary Jane's on the line in Santa Inez, California. Mary Jane, thanks for your call.
5: Hi, Rick. It's great to talk to you.
0: Do you have some ideas about your travels that you'd like to share?
5: Well, yeah, I was in Paris on a home exchange, which you know I could write a volume about that, how great it was. But I decided to go to Normandy Cemetery while I was in France. Even though I have no direct connection to anyone who fought in Normandy, I was so drawn to it as a lover of history. So I went to Normandy Beach by taxi from the train at Bayeux, and as we approached, yet we were still about a mile away, I was just overcome with sadness as I looked at the meadows and the hills, you know, to my left and right that I had seen on on the documentaries and movies, mm-hmm. and I just burst into tears in the back of the taxi, and, uh, you know, just thinking of the intensity of the battle and the deaths that had occurred, mm. and uh, I don't know how often that happens to a taxi driver, but he seemed unfazed by my sobbing, <laughs> and yet as I walked from the beautiful, serene cemetery down the cliff to the beach, I felt equally an intense feeling of calm and being alive, just watching the sailboats and the people enjoying you know present day life on that same beach. It was a just a roller coaster of emotions that day at Normandy.
0: You know, that roller coaster of emotions is really a beautiful part of travel, isn't it? Yes. I agree, and it would be sad if somebody went on a trip and didn't avail themselves to that. I, I, I know what you're talking about. The cemetery there—I I would imagine cabbies in Normandy <laughs> routinely get people sobbing in their back seats because it's so touching. And there's—and then to walk from—they call it the Portal of Freedom. I think you can stand on that bluff and look over it, and you can see where those courageous soldiers jumped out of their amphibious vehicles into the machine gun fire, knowing that most of them would be killed. And Today, a couple generations later, to go from that cemetery, to remember it, to be touched by it, and then to physically go down to the beach and see people just frolicking in the sunshine and the, and the sand, e- enjoying that freedom, maybe even not aware of what happened right there. It really right. is a, a moving experience.
5: Yeah, it's a, an emotion that I, I didn't really expect yeah. um, because it was so intense seeing the, the beauty of life today yeah, and you know I went right down into the water mm. just to you know feel everything I could and, mm. and I really felt that sense of almost obligation to live the most exciting life I could because that's what they fought and died for for that very purpose
0: Wow that's the way to honor the valor and the courage and, and, and the gift of all of those soldiers in Normandy in particular is to embrace life and freedom today and take care of it Exactly Beautiful, (laughs) Mary Jane. Thank you so much for for sharing that.
5: Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I hope
0: we can talk again. Mary Jane from Santa Inez. Thank you very much. Happy travels. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Long before the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, two of those Allied nations, France and England, fought against each other during the Hundred Years' War in the 14th and 15th centuries. Mark Seymour is a travel guide who bridges the old feuds between England and France. He's British-born, but now makes his home in northwestern France in the landscape medieval armies fought over. He's here to help us understand how a single advance in medieval weaponry determined the modern map of Europe and maybe even the language we're speaking right now. So, Mark, what's the big deal about the longbow?
7: I don't think you can overstate the impression that the longbow had on, on our medieval history. In the 1200s, uh, a man called Edward, Edward I, was uh, rampaging through Wales. The lands that are now called Wales, he's unified and brought under the English flag. He discovered that there were people up in those hills that were using this weapon, a piece of stick uh, with another piece of stick with a piece of string, and they would use it for game hunting. And he thought, this is pretty impressive. Um, it's a long-range weapon. I need that.
0: Is this a unique bow and arrow, or are we just talking about a bow and arrow? It's a, a six-foot-long piece of yew. So this is not
7: just a bow and arrow like we made when we were kids. This no. Is... He decided that he could uh, recruit some of these people. Um, many, many Welshmen fought in the English armies in Wales. He uh, made it a big part of the uh, the British military. When we reached the period of the Hundred Years' War, of course, the armies in Britain were much smaller than continental armies could be. Uh, we had a small population. There wasn't a lot of money. The English throne was poor. It was bankrupt compared to French throne. Uh, and
0: France and England were embroiled in this hundred years long war. Fought Totally in
7: France, yeah. it was uh, The English kingdoms at the time, they owned vast lands, extensive lands, all the way
0: around what is now north and west France. Was it basically a squabble over who owns what because of this king and that king succeeded another and there was a question about who was the rightful king? That's how it started and then it was protracted
7: because, you know, who should be king of France? Should it be the king of England or should it be the king of France? But at one time, I mean, half
0: of today's France was considered part of England. That's right, absolutely. So France is in the hole, France is fighting. Uh, uh, England has a, a smaller army though
7: well a much smaller army much smaller population um, population between 2 and 3 million people in France the population uh, of the French territories were approximately 15 to 16 million people so we needed an edge <laughs> um, they attacked our lands um, and
0: we needed an edge to defend them they attacked your lands in, in France France? and the English outnumbered defended themselves against great odds with their secret, secret weapon, weapon yes. The yes and Edward
7: uh, was a very very clever man going way back to the 1200s he had actually instituted a law whereby every English moon between the age of 15 and 60 would own a longbow wow. and weapons but no matter how poor you were you would have to have this weapon 30 years later he instituted another law which um, meant that these men had to go and train for 10 hours a day once a week so by the time the Hundred Years' War came along, a hundred years later... We're talking, what, in the 1300s, basically. Exactly,
0: yeah. Could anybody make a longbow? I mean, any peasant with a carving knife could make a longbow, or did you need special wood to have such a powerful uh, bow? anybody in everybody who owned a bow
7: would be able to make one uh, but they did need special wood they needed the heart of the yew tree the heart
0: um, of the yew tree yes oh so that would be quite expensive actually when you get to the heart of a yew tree yes
7: yes and uh, as the hundred years war wore on um, yew became almost inaccessible to most people because the trees had been felled um, you know a hundred years of warfare everybody
0: using so you know, a the bow so the yew was endangered because that's where you had your most powerful weapon yes and by the heart you mean the very inside of the trunk the, of the yew the inside and then the outer bark around it, that
7: creates that strength and the spring. And that's what gives a bow the power. Now, depending on how
0: powerful you are, it would depend on how, mu- how thick that bow should be and how tall it should be. So if you had a very strong man, you could have a very big bow. But very it was still bow. limited to what one man could pull back with his arm. Yes. Long story short, who won the Hundred Years' War and how might have history been different if we didn't have the longbow involved? Well, I'm English, so I'll
7: always make a joke of it. We won most of the battles. Um, the French did win the war. Because um, oh, okay.
0: so, that's why we have France today. Exactly. The way it is. exactly. But you lost the war, but you had the advantage with the longbow. So how could the longbow have made a difference today? Did it stop France from going further?
7: Yes. And I think it, because it checked France for that 140-year oh, okay. period, um, it stopped them from becoming the great power in Europe. And in fact, it's quite interesting because the Holy Roman Empire itself actually backed England at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Um, so they recognise the ability of France to, to stretch its wings and perhaps prosper too much.
0: Could you actually say that if there was no longbow, we might be having this interview in French today? Yes. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair to say. I uh, think that, that is quite likely. Is yeah. something that, given how well I speak French, I'm glad there was a longbow. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% on that one. <laughs> and as a traveler, where can I best see Hundred Years' War sites? In France, obviously,
7: because of that war. Mm. Um, that's where it was fought. One of the best is Mont-Saint-Michel. You can see, still see the walls. You can still see the the artillery. There's a piece inside the gate there in Mont-Saint-Michel. At
0: Mont-Saint-Michel, from the 14th yeah, century, yeah. from the it's Hundred a, Years' it's War. It's an English piece of cannon that they, we were unable to, uh, nice. to take the island. But how did the longbow, longbow even matter? Does it impact history later on? Are we different today because of the
7: longbow? Some famous battles were won during the Hundred Years' War, courtesy of the longbow. Um, the English archers, it's reputed. If they were captured, their fingers would be removed. Wait a um, minute.
0: The archers... When they would capture them, because they were the key guys, these were the most destructive uh, guys on the enemy team, Yes, to make them unable to fight in the future. Rather than killing them, they could just cut off the fingers that they pulled the bow
7: with? Yes, the story goes that uh, the fingers would be removed. To this day, now if you think back to the Second World War, the end of the Second World War, um, Churchill did a wonderful sign. He put the two fingers up, the V, and uh, to this day an Englishman will always use that sign as a sign for victory. And I thought it was like used V worldwide. for the
0: letter V for victory but it's V for I still have I my still fingers, have my two fingers yes. the fingers I use to pull back the string on that longbow. The bow. English
7: longbow, yes. The resilience of the English nation reflected in two fingers.
2: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks for studio help this week to WKNO Memphis and the Radio Foundation in New York City. Each week you'll find web links to our guests. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
6: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.